Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Palm or Passion Sunday lectionary. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Fred Clarkson, who is the Spanish Language Ministry Coordinator for the Diocese of East Carolina and serves as priest in charge at La Sagrada Familia Episcopal Church in Newton Grove, North Carolina. Father Fred hails from Bogota, Colombia, and is the dad to his dog, Joy, who you may hear during today's podcast and the Reverend Rachel Tabor Hamilton, who is of Indigenous, Shakin, First Nation, and European heritage. She is Rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Everett, Washington. She co-founded the Circles of Color Advocacy Network in the Diocese of Olympia and serves as the Vice President of the House of Deputies for the Episcopal Church. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for uh, being willing to come and Prophetic Voices and join us and be with us today. As we think about Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, what ideas do you have for this liturgy or this service that might make it interesting or new or something that maybe you do as a part of your every year type of thing? For several years, we've been doing something different with our Palm Sunday liturgy. We have separated out the Passion and placed it on Good Friday. And it's a part of our Good Friday service, which allows us to use the gospel recommended for the procession of palms as being Mm -hmm. our central gospel. And we focus on the nature of the triumphal entry and the symbolism that is so great and profound and rich in that whole thing and break that out from its historical roots and how it would have been interpreted in the third century and earlier. And just really allow ourselves to think about the radical nature of that triumphal entry and what does that say to us and call us to do. I think one of the things that I will say is that when I think of Palm Sunday as the beginning and the move into Holy Week, you know, in most Latin American countries, Holy Week in many places, you take off. Mm -hmm. You don't work Holy Week. And I think historically, you were supposed to spend it in preparation and meditation. I think now they just go on vacation. But it's still kind of a, a separate sort of time. It's interesting, like some schools will have it off, but a lot of people, I mean, we don't even take Good Friday off in this country, other except obviously for the church. So the dichotomy strikes me. Wow. Because of perhaps the culture, lives, difficult lives, that some people have a tendency to identify a lot with those elements of the suffering, even sometimes more than with the resurrection. So because it, it gives people a sense that God understands their situation. Hmm. Palm Sunday is one of those, Good Friday and Ash Wednesday. I'm a priest in charge of, at a church where the previous priest didn't do anything on Ash Wednesday, only did things on Sunday because he was older. He didn't drive at night. And we had never done anything on, usually on days that were not Sundays. And we just had an Ash Wednesday for the first time, probably on Wednesday in 20 some odd years. And the number of people who came uh, was pretty astronomical. I think the idea that God understands our suffering really speaks to people who have had difficult times. And that's probably what they hear more so than the triumphalism that takes place at the beginning. Hmm. I always like the processional piece. I love, well, I always love going to church and getting something. Obviously, you know, you get communion or whatever if it's a Sunday, but like, I like getting the palm. It's like always something, I got to take this thing home and it was cool. And, you know, being not from 
a tropical area, palms aren't something that just we can just get. So I think that's kind of cool. In the Orthodox Church, they'll give you a pussy willow sometimes. And I love processing around. I thought it was cool. We got to process around in all of our vestments with like the thurible sometime, you know, all the singing and stuff. Yeah, that was always something I appreciate about the liturgy. I know that several congregations are also sort of replacing palms with whatever is their local flora. And there was a year when we, our older guild remembered a little too late to order them what they needed. And uh, so it was going to be after Palm Sunday when we got the palms. So people who here in the Pacific Northwest had cedar trees took snippings of their cedar trees. And that's what we gave out was our cedar branches. Awesome. Because if Jesus came to the Pacific Northwest, we would not be ripping apart palm trees. (laughs) We would be maybe looking at our cedar trees and other trees. And what a way to indigenize the tool, right? Because that's also a medicine for us as Indian people. Exactly. And I use it, I always use it when we're renewing vows or when we need incense, I've begun more and more to use it as a smudging tool. I think one of the things that's interesting, at least that I've noticed, is that the cross-making, with the palm cross-making, I have encountered that that's often very much community building and people love to do that in preparation for Palm Sunday. Hmm. You know, sometimes people want something that's their own, but sometimes they do want to be transported elsewhere to a different place. When we think from an ecological perspective, it's good to use the indigenous plant. But sometimes people do want to go to, I mean, obviously palms, most of our folks will have experienced palms because they come from, you know, countries close to the tropics. But sometimes they do like the idea of encountering something that is alien to them that allows them to perhaps experience something new. There's that juxtaposition, whether it's, For them, palms aren't really foreign, but at least for this area, obviously they are. Not yet. Give it time. Global warming. (laughs) We may have palms here soon. (laughs) So in the story, the Matthew gospel that we use for the liturgy of the palms, that, you know, Jesus says like, you know, go take this colt or donkey, or maybe in this case it was both. And when anybody asks, say that it's, you know, the Lord needs it and then they'll be okay with it, which of course is kind of what happens in the story. But what are you willing, and I, am I saying you plurally, not just like you as an individual, but what are you, what do you think we as a church maybe are willing to give up because the Lord needs it? And maybe another question is, what does the Lord need right now? There's a couple of things for me. The first context that I would just raise up is uh, the understanding I have of the symbolism in the whole event there of the procession in, and then what are we being asked to give up? I'm really highly informed by a book called The Last Week, what the Gospels really teach about Jesus's final days in Jerusalem. And it's a collaborative effort between Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. And they do a beautiful job of sort of recognizing what is happening in that whole moment as a social statement and it's a social justice statement as well and a transformative one and there they set it within the moment on the opposite side of the city of jerusalem coming from the west is pontius pilate who's the roman governor of judea and samaria so he's entering in coming from his palace city on the coast and he has the company of an imperial cavalry he's coming in as an emperor and king for a day all those symbols and then coming in from the other side of the city is jesus coming in through what is the messiah gate and quite intentionally his whole symbol set is in contrast to what is going on with the governor and he's coming on not a war horse that's in armor he's coming on this donkey or this humbled colt Mm. uh, which is a symbol system associated with king david 
as a king of peace, not coming into cities that he has conquered as one who's going to be brutal, but rather coming on a donkey, which signifies he's coming to in peace. So he's echoing that. So there's kingship stuff flying all over the place. <laughs> and when I'm asked by my king, you know, what are you willing to give up? It's very clear that this whole thing has been pre-planned. Go to this person and get this animal and I'm going to write it because they're part of this plan. And this plan is so revolutionary. And it's a plan that is a revolution in peace that's calling people to interact differently and to be in relationship differently in a different kind of kingdom that's being established and so this triumphal entry is into our hearts and into our communities and changing our understanding of community and our relationship to authority and oppression. So when my God is calling me, what are you willing to give up? One of the things that's clear to me is my fear. Mm. And I'm being asked to give up anything that's creating a barrier to following Christ that might be scary to me in challenging the, the dominant culture around me. And sometimes that includes the dominant culture of church. So I'm being asked to give up whatever is that barrier, that ego piece that's afraid that I might lose something or be in jeopardy. And that's a very real, real fear for any leadership I've talked to in the church that's being confronted with choices for towards transformation that feel revolutionary. Mm -hmm. It's subversive to follow Christ. You know, after kind of thinking about what we're being asked to give up or what we've given up or what we're willing to give up. And I think in the recent years, the church has reached kind of a point of inflection where we're looking at our history and, and different elements. And I think the one thing that the church has been willing to give up, and you've seen a little bit of it in the work that they've done with like sacred ground, is at least the perception that the church has historically used power well. That perception has been given up. Hmm. I don't think the church has given, gotten to the point where they're giving up the power, <laughs> but they've given up the perception that it's been well used. That, And I think that's something that's a starting point. But I think those are some of the elements that, you know, resonate with me. And you can think about it because you wonder if this fellow who allowed them to use the donkey, you assume he had other donkeys, hmm. but what if it's his only donkey? <laughs> you know, he's giving mm -hmm. up his only donkey. Is he like that widow who gives everything up or is he like those people who give from, from the excess? So I think at least in the context of what I see, we're beginning that process of giving some things up, but obviously, ultimately, are we willing to be that, the widow who gives everything up? I think that's where the transformation takes place. It's ultimately about trusting fully. So I think the process has begun. We're going to see where Jesus takes us from there. I think we need to be willing to give up our comfort. You know, like so much we come to church and this like toxic nostalgia we have. Where it's like, oh, we've always done it this way. And we've always had the jello salad after potluck on church or, you know, whatever, all these kind of things. It's like, are we willing to give up our comfort and get outside and maybe do something new, right? Try something new to be willing to risk rejection by, you know, meeting our neighbors and saying hi to our neighbors and not necessarily creepy Jesus inviting them to church, but more like just building a relationship, which can mean we're risking rejection. That kind of struck me when you said creepy Jesus, because that's certainly a cultural element. And I think that's one of the things about that when you think of Anglos, they don't tend to invite anyone to church because they don't want to come across that way. And one of at least the gifts of the Latino community is they could care less. They'll invite people to church. And so sometimes those are the gifts. Sometimes we carry baggage, <laughs> but it's understandable because 
you know, we're dealing within a society where the people who invited you to church didn't always have the best intentions. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I mean, those are some of the gifts. I've always felt that the seven last words of the church are, we have always done it this way. <laughs> and just having a whole sermon, just saying, what is it that we're being asked to just let rest and we can honor what's come before. And in indigenous communities, that's very important. And we recognize what is coming from our youth and young adults is also a wisdom that is drawing us into the future that we need to be a part of. I also believe that we follow a God who has said repeatedly that he's a God who's promised to make all things new. And if we're doing that, if we're walking toward the message of Easter through Holy Week, then we are responsible to prepare ourselves for being transformed and accepting that. Hmm. One of the things that always strikes me about this service, I'm kind of glad you moved the Passion to Friday. I know a lot of times you'll read the Passion on Friday as well, but like it's how you, you know you you have this Palm Sunday and everything's joyful. And then all the ones you read the Passion, like right after that, it goes like from like happy joy, joy to like, oh, and it just like hits you right hard in the stomach. And how quickly, you know, Jesus went from riding into the, the city, you know, everybody's so excited. And then how quickly people turn on him and you both are clergy, so I'm sure you've experienced this having been, you know, like you come to a church like, oh, we want you to make all these changes and stir us up as you, you know, if you have a new church or a new rector and then then the rector gets mad at you because you're doing exactly what they want you to do. It's like how quickly they can turn. Where do you see things aside from that where things like that happen in our church or where do you see that maybe we need to be a little better about supporting our leaders or supporting folks? There's a story from Lambeth that when the Lambeth meeting began, it was really a white gentleman's agreement <laughs> club. And that when they got to a point of recognizing that all these different areas that they had missionized, they needed to bring up local clergy and bishops, that that meant eventually they were going to be impacted by inviting these African bishops and others. So early on in the life of the organization of the church, they had fear around how these people might <laughs> might bring in uh, the desire for change. And that was mm. very disruptive to the old white boys club. And so I think more and more, we have the most diverse executive council in the history of the church and the most diverse executive leadership. And yes, when, when we open up our hearts and open up our institution, to what is new and different, we're going to be changed by that. Mm-hmm. And that process of change is scary. And we want to be able to companion one another in that as that change and not simply replace uh, one kind of authority by you know people of color doing the same things. We want to transform the nature of authority uh, into partnership and transform Uh, an oppressive system to voice that's fearful of new voice into one that invites everyone to be able to speak in a safe way uh, about what fears they have, concerns they have, needs that they have from the church that are all can be very legitimate and then make our way forward together. That is truly sacred ground for the heart. Mm. You know, the church and, and, you know, obviously the way we're, we're set up, we are, we have a lot of structures. And I think historically they would be, okay, we're going to bring these different people in and we'll make sure that they fall into place. That they assimilate. They assimilate and they become, you know, it doesn't matter what they look like. (laughs) 
but I think also one of the things about that is that it leaves us completely impoverished in terms of any richness. And so one of the things that at least within the context of what we do, there are traditions that come like the quinceanera. Mm. And it's not about taking on someone else's culture. It's about receiving gifts that God has given all people through different cultures. Mm. I think taking in those gifts are important and sharing them. Another example real quickly is around Thanksgiving. You know, it was conceived as a secular holiday by the government for a particular nationalistic reason in its history. And more and more as congregations sort of want to provide a Thanksgiving Day service or that those who are sort of becoming aware that maybe the narrative of that day that they tell traditionally Mm. is a white supremacist version (laughs) that they want to relook at. And it's a perfect opportunity. You know, we say in the church how often we want to be in an improved relationship Um, or reconciled relationship with our Indigenous people, November is a really perfect way to be very intentional about providing learning and opportunity for bridge building and mutual understanding. Let's talk about the psalm, the Psalm 31. That psalm is just like full of lament. I guess sometimes I can relate to this both, I think, as an LGBT person and as like a person of color from time to time. Where and how do we need to lament across our church? Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that I always want to balance out is the heritage we have that goes deep into Middle Ages, you know, that really has taken that idea and Christology of sacrifice to an ultimate place that really quite diminishes humanity it really Mm. does the whole theology around sinful nature of humanity and original sin and all of that theology that is quite built up that informs sort of um, how we might identify with lament in the psalms right so this whole you know beat my chest i'm a sinner i'm a sinner that connects with that kind of confuses that what's happening in our psalmody is the lament of a people who are oppressed Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. These lamentations are coming from a deep soul place of saying, you know, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And there's the wonderful story of Eli Weissel, who is in the Jewish internment camps in the Holocaust period. And the rabbis got together with the question of, is God causing this to happen to us? Is God to blame? And they have a whole trial. And in that trial process, they discover, yes, God is responsible. God is to blame for this happening to us. And the very next thing they did was offer prayers to the glory of Yahweh. They continue to make a commitment to be in relationship with that God. Mm. There's a way that our human experience brings us to very mortal and horrific experiences of this life and of uh, human nature. And what we need to turn to is... Yes, the, that God has presence in it, but where are we connecting to that presence? How are we connecting to the Christ who during Holy Week is, you know, in Golgotha, you know, or before that time in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally sweating and crying blood and, and saying, I know this is going to happen. I know God is behind it. I know that this is something I've agreed to that I'm in relationship with, but I am not a victim. 
And the theology mm. often describes the paschal victim when what in fact is happening is the highly empowered individual who is motivated by love and passion for the people and a love and passion of God to move forward with genuinely changing our whole relationship and understanding of God and of what we're called to be as people. Mm. You know, I think in many ways that particular passage in Gethsemane, it's important because I think the message that it tells us is that Jesus is not a suicidal person. <laughs> Jesus is making a decision. It's an intentional thing. So I think that's important. When I think of the psalm in terms of lament, I think sometimes there's the lament of the loss of opportunities to be in closer relationship with God, but also there's the lament of lost opportunities to be in relationship with each other. Hmm. I definitely, Rachel, hear the difference between like lament as here I am a person oppressed, lamenting this oppression. And then I think there's also the lament of what do we do as maybe part of an institution that has done the oppressing, uh, almost more of like a reckoning or whatever. And I know we're talking about that throughout the church as we think about that. The lament, I think, comes from all sides with regard to reconciling with the history of the church and its ongoing way that it can continue to replicate oppressive systems. And the big lament that I hear from white allies is how, how can they change it? How can they be a part of change? Because the whole system of structure and governance and constitution and canons is that history. It's there to protect mm. itself. So then we have to bring in our, our people of color, our deputies of color, to get kind of integrated enough, invited enough into the conversations that we can move from this kind of weird protectionism of an oppressive system that's experienced as oppressive into a system that feels much more mutual and, and honoring, mutually honoring. Uh, so when people, when white allies come to me and say, you know, how do I move away from sort of this evangelical white supremacist version of Jesus, uh, and also how that's manifested in a colonial church, you know, my thought is look first to what it's trying to protect right now. And the assimilative processes that say, before you can change anything, you have to learn this system. Because that's essentially what the church is saying. Our whole orientation of people of color to general convention is to have them become aware and informed about a dominant white culture system. That's difficult all in itself. And it's putting the burden on people of color to be the people that that change a system that doesn't really want to. I absolutely agree. I think one of the things that people are becoming aware of, though, is that eventually systems that don't have life collapse, they die. And also, I think, at least when we think of the story, one of the things that we do need to look at is what is at the heart of the church structure and what should be at the heart of the church. Right. Or the way I always talk about it is that there's the church and then there's an institutional church. And the institutional church, fleetingly at its best, might be the church. But very often it's not. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think when people are willing to understand that, and I think that's something very important, then perhaps we stop attributing some of the most horrendous things that the church has done to God. A horrendously bad church is very good at creating people who have no interest in God. 
one of the things that happened at this last general convention was this wonderful historical moment where every indigenous minister, you know, missioner or a representative or delegate on the floor there, all the deputies were able to have a moment at the microphone and we were not interrupted. People needed to take a little more time. But what I noticed was the indigenous deputies being aware that they had two minutes. So they were respecting that boundary. Um, and only like one person needed to really kind of go over with the additional time being offered. That's one thing. So they were respecting the tradition of the organization. But what it was, was all these voices suddenly, you know, for the first time and people having the awareness and speaking truth about the church that they love. And we love mm-hmm. the church. We, we want to be in relationship, but we wouldn't, it's not worth it as an indigenous person to deal with it if we didn't love it. And so, um, but then afterward, there was a deputy who's an older white gentleman, got up to the microphone and completely flummoxed by what he just heard and said, but the church is a good thing and we did good things. And he went on to kind of speak and quote some hymnody that was actually extremely oppressive imagery. (laughs) And again, I just think that there's a cultural disconnect and, and a system and a tradition that feels threatened by this kind of truth telling of impact. And when we speak, about things like this, speak about suffering, speak about lament. It isn't intended to shame or to blame. And that's how the impact is that white people need to own their own feelings about that and not ask us to take care of their feelings, that kind of fragility. Um, So when we're speaking truth and when we're speaking lament and we're speaking about the need for justice, it's coming from a place of desperate pain that the thing we love that says it loves us is not, in fact, being a loving experience. Uh And that's the definition of abuse. Mm. When someone says, I've hurt you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and then they continue to do that cycle. So even just recognizing that that cycle needs to be broken, and that's not our job as people of color, it's the white people's job. Let's move on to the gospel, the big passion. It's super long. There's lots of pieces in there. One of the things that you said, Rachel, kind of made me think about, you talked about Jesus as being this very empowered person who is making a a choice. And I think of, you know, in our Lakota context, we do sun dancing. And so I think of that, you know, the people who sun dance, they pierce themselves and make a sacrifice so that the people may have life. And I think of Jesus kind of as the ultimate sun dancer who sacrificed his own life so that we could have eternal life. But it's definitely a choice that the dancer makes themselves. That's not something that is forced upon them. Mm -hmm. I made that connection as you were talking. There's so many pieces in this very long gospel. What stands out for you? What is the piece that you sort of connect with? Or is there a piece that is important for you to interpret as you think about it, maybe as you're preaching on it or as you tell your congregation? What I really marvel at is the transformation of the symbol system associated with Passover hmm. and the meanings that are very intentionally being redrawn, that are still connected to antiquity and inheritance of tradition and identity, but are being completely reinterpreted for what the intention is going forward. So again, there's respect there for what has been, and there's a desire to bring it forward but to understand it differently in light of the Messiah, the event of the Messiah. And so taking this image of cup and bread and making them into something that sets a table for all people. And even though our gospel writer really focuses on Judas, and there's a whole nother thing I would say about Judas that's different from what we normally interpret, that everyone, even people who 
are sort of even anti-Jesus, <laughs> people who don't buy into any of it, are really invited to be part of a messianic event, are invited to be part of recognizing how human suffering is related to a God who has compassion for that suffering and is not the person who's saying your suffering is good. That really troubles me a lot of theology that says your suffering is good and it has a purpose. I think we can have human suffering and see Jesus suffering, recognize it where it is and not as some fantastical thing and say it sucks to be human sometimes. It sucks to be mortal. It sucks to do God's will sometimes. And just be honest about that and how painful that can be. We can say it hurts to be in the church. <laughs> and then we can also say, and we're dedicated to it. And so how do we transform things going forward? So for me, that whole imagery of drink of this cup is an invitation to all of us. And to eat this bread that Jesus represents is an invitation to us. Mm. And the ultimate goal is to become so united to Christ that we are literally taking him into ourselves and being transformed by that relationship mm. and being one with God, uh, rather than sort of having it as this moment of fear where the Passover is, we're really praying that God will keep us safe from all the plagues. <laughs> we're saying we desire to be so united to Christ and so united to his humanity and his experience that we recognize that we're never alone and never abandoned, no matter what we face, and that our death is never the end of that relationship. One thing that really strikes me about that really long passion reading, we have people who laud Christ in the liturgies, and then they're also the ones who condemn Christ. Hmm. And so there's always this particular issue within our own lives. Where are we serving as people who are life-giving? And where are we serving as people who are life-depriving? And per perhaps in that sense, it can also be viewed as oppressors, you know, which are diminishing people's lives. And that's kind of an interesting thing, because in many instances, they might be one and the same, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most important things in particularly this time and as a church, as a whole, is a tremendous amount of discernment without making any assumptions. You know, like the fellow at General Convention thinking the church was doing good things, but that's an assumption that that individual was making. So one thing that really strikes me particularly, not only in the context of the church, but in the context of our times, is that we always act and we always assume things based on the idea that the world is progressing. But there are times in history where the world has been regressing. And to some extent, we're living some of those times, you know, mm. objectively speaking. As we kind of go through this holy week, in the shadow of death, we have to somehow find life. And I think that's part of the process. And I think hopefully the Palm Sunday, this gospel gets people thinking very deliberately during that week as we head to Easter to where the divine life is to be found. Mm. Well, one of my concerns about sort of the dominant theology or Christology that kind of gets taught and passed along is this idea that focuses solely on what happens to Jesus in the, on the cross mm -hmm. and the suffering, yada, yada. <laughs> but the thing is, though, his whole life is 
speaking to us about what we're called to do. His whole life of healing, of invitation, of inclusiveness, of challenging authority that is oppressive and doesn't serve the needs of the people, that only acts for its own benefit, not for the benefit of community. All of those things are sacrifice. All of those things were challenging to the people around them. All of those things were about creating something new. And so we get to the cross and the message for me about that is those of us who are looking at that cross through Holy Week are responsible to continue the legacy of his life. We're supposed to, to live that. And that's that life giving that you were talking about for me, which is we're, to focus solely on the sacrificial nature of his death is really, I think, a theological failure to recognize the complete and utter joy of his life, which was essentially a table ministry of partying, but <laughs> in, in, in a really great way, in contrast to John the Baptist, this kind of ascetic person, mm -hmm. uh, that Jesus is really about living life so fully and setting kind of, again, you know, ego aside, even though he could have totally claimed it and all those temptations in the desert. But he says, no, I, my power my authority and the nature of that and the nature of God that I am putting on display is one that's grounded in compassion and forgiveness and embracing the diversity that God has made. You know, we always have this idea of the Jesus, you know, and then we think of living in the light of the resurrection and obviously the book of Acts. But I think part of the issue is that sometimes we think, well, if living in the light of the resurrection is the church, maybe we have to rethink it a little bit because the history of the church has not been necessarily living the light of the resurrection for so many people. No, it's been inviting people to the cross instead of into the deep joy of life. Well, sure. And I think I can certainly, you know, see that perfectly in, in that sense. Um, I think ultimately that is reclaiming the Jesus from the little glimpses that we get from the gospel stories. And I think sometimes we reclaim it in the scandalous nature of Jesus. And the gospel is also filled with shaming and blaming and finger pointing about that event. And so we have to kind of peel that back <laughs> to get to the, I think the genuine messaging that is there for all of us. And it's not shaming and blaming one another into Jesus. <laughs> it's loving and empowering one another into God. Yeah. Cause when you think of shaming and blaming, it's the best way to disempower people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so. yeah. So I'm going to shame and blame a moment, or at least call us to think about this. Like I, as I read this this time, you know, what's been happening in the news right now, you know, the police in Memphis released the video of Tyree Nichols and, you know, they just had his funeral recently. And of course that came up to me and I can't help but see the parallels between Tyree Nichols and the crucifixion. And, you know, one of the things we talk about is like, you know, we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I'm always curious, like, what role does the crowd play in the crucifixion of Jesus? What role does Pilate play? And, you know, at any given time, you know, if we're religious leaders, in some ways we are in the role of Pilate, right? Because we have some authority. And in some times, you know, maybe we aren't. We're more in the role of the crowd and how, I guess I'm sort of struggling thinking about those connections and thinking about how do we see ourselves in the story? Where do you see yourself in the story? Where do you think there's changes that we could make? Sometimes we feel a little helpless. Maybe people in the crowd felt helpless, or maybe they were just so caught up in everything, like the police officers that were there. They all said none of them intended to kill him, but of course he's dead, right? And that mob mentality kind of takes over sometimes. No, it very definitely, the whole psychology around 
mob motivation is clearly changing people's attitude and understanding in that moment. So there's that about human nature. And there's also, I think, the only way to not do that is, again, changing what's in ourselves that is even more courageous in not participating in that kind of, you know, and saying in the moment, I'm going to call Mm. it out. And we know even from other instances of police brutality that people who were saying, stop it, stop it, you're killing him, were at risk of being arrested and brutalized Mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. And some of the most powerful images out of these protests and protests we've seen before are of individuals confronting an entire line of police Mm. and not being violent toward them, but just standing there and challenging, you know, just being present in that way. And so that the people are perpetrating the brutality, understand that they're being witnessed and give a different experience to how to deal with this. So it's absolutely right and understandable to me that people should protest what's going on. The apostles and others who are following Jesus had the same risk. They're sitting there, standing there in the crowd, they're there, they're witnessing this going on. And if they were to protest, we know what would happen and ultimately did happen to them anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, that cost is right there in the midst of an oppressive system. And the thing that happens is unless we're willing to sort of step into that, then those brutalities are not highlighted and captured. And in some ways we are sacrificed to that. And we see in every generation um, where I identify with is the people who are caught about what to do. I also identify with the women who ultimately are at the foot of that cross because the men who are the only one constituted as citizens who have something mm-hmm. to risk mm-hmm. are all in hiding. Right. The women are considered non-people. They're non-citizens. They're owned by men. And because of their lack of status, they can be present and ministering to Christ in that moment. So the benefit of being seen as a non-person is that we can actually be present. Citizens, I think, in those situations are considered non-people. They have no rights to interfere to given them by these authorities. So it's like, okay, I'm going to use my non-human status and my ascribed non-authority to stand here in the face of you and say, I want something different and I represent something different. Hmm. When you were saying that, what kind of struck me was that the idea, and it's certainly symbolized on the cross and symbolized in the ministry of Jesus, is that power always impedes relationship. And in order to be in relationship, we do have to give up any power vis-a-vis others that we have. Otherwise, it's not a real relationship. It's just an association of sorts. The church speaks to the world, but it shouldn't always look like the world. Otherwise, it's just the world. It goes the way of the world. And you're going to have the same issues. So what are some redemptive characteristics of the church that ultimately, in other words, if you're not playing the role of transformation in the world, you're just going to end up where the world is. (laughs) So I think there's always a role of transformation that sometimes we're not willing to assume because it's a dangerous role and it takes courage. When you think of the apostles, they eventually gain more courage and then they play that transformative role in terms of after the resurrection but they weren't willing to assume that courage or assume that role in that instance. I want to share a real world experience that my church 
uh, Trinity Episcopal in Everett, Washington was having when Black Lives Matter movement protests were happening here in Everett. So I made a point of putting on my clericals. I even wore my black cassock. I stood out in the street and I was just there and present and supporting my family of, of color, you know, just being there. And we've had historically very good and important relationships with our local Everett Police Department. We rely on them because our church is in a kind of a gang area and other kinds of things that can happen with drug abuse. So we rely on them to help keep us safe and my community safe and our elders safe. And we've often used them for security for certain events. And one of my favorite police officers was in a patrol car patrolling the protests of Black Lives Matter. And I waved at him a couple of times when he went by. And after he saw me in that context, he no longer communicated with our church. He no longer communicated with me. He was mm-hmm. unwilling to serve in security because his impression of that whole protest was anti-police mm-hmm. rather than anti-violent oppression. Mm-hmm. So I literally had to go to the police department and say, because we are standing for the justice issues here does not mean that we don't support our local PD and that we don't value your contribution. But you know you need to transform. My church knows that we need to transform. You know you need to change. And we will companion you in those changes. And we will not allow you to abuse the citizenry. We all play a role in systems that are less than stellar. But I think that distinction between structures and relationships is so important that we have to make because ultimately what sustains us are relationships, not structures. Hmm. Once the relationships are gone, those structures will collapse like very quickly. <laughs> so. Well, we become the other yeah. to police. And I often think that's a real entrapment for them as well as for us when they're given the repeated messaging that somehow... You know, we're only citizens if we do or look a certain way. <laughs> um, and even we're suspects, you know. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just, it's this ongoing, when we other yeah. other people, when we do the othering that even it happened at Standing Rock and listening to the language of the security people that were there, they were calling us insurgents. You know, all the language that wants to distance. And I'm like, I'm an American citizen. We're all standing here as American citizens. Your obligation is to defend our rights. And you're sitting here representing an, an American corporation that's ready to pay you gazillions of dollars to harm us. Yeah. For what? For why? Hmm. When it comes right down to it, every single one of those persons has a name. Mm-hmm. And when we say their name, then we remember that they're made in the image of God. By following Jesus, we are all ennobled by Jesus. Yeah. The nobility, that idea of kingship or authority, we're ennobled by that. And we need to live out of that nobility. There was a, a woman who, she was a chaplain in the prison system. And it was around this time, it was around the time of Easter and Good Friday, Holy Week. She participated in a protest against the death penalty. And it was a group of protesters, and they were all carrying the cross. And they would begin to trespass on the property and be arrested. They were arrested every time. And as they trespassed, they would hand the cross. It was like this Baptist cross that's covered with flowers at Easter. Okay. And so they kept on passing the cross back until the very last person was arrested. And the cross fell onto the ground. And at that point, the policeman who was arresting them picked it up. The symbolism, the irony, in other words, you participated in a system mm-hmm. that is doing this 
we're all stuck in a system that we hope and that we need to work to transform, whether it be the church or it be the world. But I think that's ultimately the work bringing the gospel to bear in the world. Where do you see yourself in this story? I know I've seen myself as different people at different times. So maybe just for this year, where do you see yourself in this story? Well, not to be egotistical, I do see myself called to speaking truth to power. So I'm identifying with Jesus confronting Pilate. Mm. I just see myself as endeavoring I pray that I'm not throwing condemning Jesus, and I hope that I'm somehow at least doing what I can to be in the part of the crowd that maybe ultimately will somehow sneak its way through to the other side of the resurrection and get to see some of what that that looks like. I think the only way we get to resurrection is to live those that triduum, to live into what it looks like to stay true to your deepest humanity and the consequence of that choice. And then what it looks like to become the body of Christ in the resurrection. I really feel like the centurion, like at least this year anyway, like, you know, he was just kind of going about, he was just doing his job. And then he saw this wonder, well, maybe not wonderful thing, but this horrible thing that then he was able to be inspired and see this powerful thing. And I think so often, especially it seems to happen when I'm just kind of trying to do my job or just trying to get through the day. And then the Holy Spirit comes in with some magical thing. And it could be somebody that I see on the subway talking to me. And I'm like, holy cow, they're very, that's a profound thought. Or it could even be some checkout clerk at the grocery store or whatever. And they say something, I'm like, oh, yeah. And like, whatever they said has this deep meaning for some other part of my life. So that's how I feel. And those interactions, I think, are very transformative. Can you imagine how many crucifixions he had seen? Right, right. In the Roman Imperial Army, there was a special squad that was specialized in crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So they were busy, busy folks. And to them, it became, it made them less human as their mm-hmm. emotions were inured to what they were doing. So after reading this, what questions are you left asking? Like, my big one is always like, who's to blame? And I used to think there was just one person. Like, was it Pilate? Was it the crowd? Was it da-da-da? Because, you know, somebody's responsible. And then I was like, you know what? We're all kind of a little bit responsible. And me as an individual, when I don't call out injustice when I see it, I'm a person in that crowd, too, crucifying Jesus. What questions do you have that come up for you? Those moments of vulnerability in the face of harm, potential harm. You know, and harm takes lots of expressions. But when there are moments sometimes when facing that, you know, kind of facing that pilot moment, facing that crowd moment, where I find myself fearful to make that choice. Mm. And I may not make that choice that day in that moment to do that response. And I may just kind of walk away or I may turn off the news. I may not go to the protest. I have to ask myself, is today a day I can afford the cost? Because I'm now wounded so much by this. I'm tired. I'm all those Mm. things. And um, it isn't because I don't care. It's because my humanity is at risk, Uh, just in the fatigue of all of it. Um, And so I bring that to prayer and I just say, you know, I need assurance. I mean, I don't need assurance of survival. I need assurance of God's presence, (laughs) you know, and I, I, that's what I go to prayer for. It's just that assurance and reminder that whatever happens, that God is in me and surrounding me and in this moment, bringing that to God and saying, those are those micro moments that kind of emulate Jesus saying, I really want to pass this cup. (laughs) I really want to pass this cup. And I do believe that if Jesus had made a different choice, that God would still be loving. 
I think part of the issue, though, is that the work cannot be done without relationships. And sometimes those relationships have to be with people who are playing other roles that are less than stellar, even if, and we realize sometimes we're playing those roles. I think at least in ministry are so important that we maintain the capacity to remain in relationship with people we may not agree with. It's like you going back to talk to the police officer because you knew that, you know, once he stopped talking to you, there's nothing that could be done in terms of any transformation between the two of you. The idea that Jesus has the ability throughout his ministry to set healthy boundaries with those who are saying that they love him and that he's in human relationship with is super important because even in our society today, we'll have men and women kind of coming in a pastoral context and say, I'm in an abusive relationship. How many times am I supposed to forgive my abuser? You know, and it's like, you know, is and it's like, uh, you're not, you know, because there's a whole... Uh, preposition that has to happen first. They have to acknowledge that they're in the wrong and there's a process of reconciliation. So it's not healthy and you do need to set boundaries that are healthy and that's perfectly good and fully human thing to do. I certainly agree with boundaries. The way I maintain relationship is I follow Jesus's example. If I can't deal with a person individually or personally, I keep them in prayer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's how I maintain relationship with them in its own way. It also isn't even necessarily about the personalities involved. They become archetypes for when truth telling happens that is challenging to the existing authority, they're not ever going to respond well. And so how do we do that truth telling in a way that continues to be committed to the relationship, but under terms that ask for change? So all of that complexity, I think, is modeled in Jesus in these last days of Holy Week. My closing question is, what ideas do you have for preaching this text? For preaching Palm Sunday, what suggestions do you have for our listeners? For me, on Palm Sunday, because we've separated out the triumphal entry and all the rich symbolism of that and, and how we need a moment to celebrate that, you know, Jesus is Messiah. <laughs> we need that, that moment and the consequence of that arrival and what does it mean and the alternative that we're being offered. Um, so I preach Palm Sunday probably pretty differently that's focused on how we're called to be followers of Christ also looks pretty darn joyful. <laughs> it looks joyful and subversive, I should say. And then going to a Good Friday, it is look at the fully human nature of God. Because if we only deify our God, then again, we've done a theological failure to understand how we are to live into our fullest humanity as emulated in Christ. Hmm. God is asking us to be fully human and to walk from our humanity hand in hand with our God, to be in genuine partnership and not keep putting God out there, but to really ask ourselves, what does it mean to be an incarnated body of Christ as community? We have to live differently together. And that is how we work out our relationship with God. When I look at the complexity of this particular, not just obviously the readings, but the liturgy, the way it's structured, where you go from this greeting Jesus to then condemning Jesus, then to crucifying Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross because the people involved have a particular view of God and a particular understanding of God. I have to ask the question is, what is our false or problematic views and understandings of God that have to die on the cross 
in order for us to ultimately have a relationship with what God is. Mm. <laughs> That's the way I would see this reading, at least for me, is of our perspectives and of our views, what we've made of God have to die before we can actually be in relationship with God. I would encourage preachers to maybe try preaching from a position that they haven't. If they were like, we identify with the disciples, so we're going to preach about denying Jesus, or maybe they're going to preach about the centurion, or maybe they're going to preach about the women by the cross or whatever. Try and preach from a point you haven't preached from to really push yourself out of your comfort zone would be it. And maybe through that uncomfortable new way, you'll have been transformed. The other thing I think would be interesting, because I know sometimes people do this like dramatized reading of it so they don't actually have a sermon that day. Maybe try and invite some people who read the different parts to preach about how they felt reading that part. How did it feel when you were Jesus? How did it feel to be whatever the soldier, soldier number one, or you know, whatever it is at the part? That'd be the other thing I would think about. Uh, when we do the Passion on Good Friday, I have done it as Greek theater. So a little bit of history of theater history in my background and doing it as a sort of very formalized Greek theater moment. So it is slightly enacted, but highly symbolic. And there is a kind of an anonymous group of people who are covered in totally red tunics and then they have red veils over their faces and they are a group that moves together like a Greek chorus. So all the voicing comes out of that except Jesus. And the person who is Jesus is all in white and and they get this very like huge crown. Again, it's all symbolism with sort of drops of red pom-poms that looks a little bit uh, more Spanish. And then he does that. And it's a highly formalized Greek theater moment. And when the time comes, when the chorus people surround him and walk him out is then mirrored when we strip the altar mm. and we carry out the altar. So the whole mirroring opportunity that's there is we are a part of the story. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us, uh, for being willing to share your wisdom and your thoughts and your stories. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Shaniqua. And if you want to see any of the things I'm talking about, just go to Trinity Episcopal Everett-Official on YouTube, and you'll find all our previous services. Awesome. And thank you very much. It's been wonderful being able to participate in this. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Fred and Rachel. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you heard something that helped you share your prophetic voice, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now, more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at iam.ec slash Good Friday Offering or text GFO 
A Good Friday offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.